0: Prophets and are all teachers? Do we all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? No. Eagerly now desire the greater gifts. This is God's word. What we have in our text here tonight, pretty simply, as I mentioned before, is, is basically just an extended metaphor that the Apostle Paul keeps pushing. He didn't invent the idea of the body as an illustration to explain organizational unity. In fact, we know that there were other Roman uh, Romans in, in rhetoric that were already using it by this time. But Paul is the first one to apply it specifically to the church. And we still fully understand the metaphor today. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to take out some of the main teachings that are packed into this text. And then I'm going to make a couple quick applications. Okay, so not all of them, but some of the main teachings. then a couple quick applications. First of all, he says that the body parts are uniquely gifted. I'm not, by the way, going to reread through every section of the text because it's pretty long, but you can have it on the screen in case you want to reread through it yourself. The body parts are uniquely gifted. There are supposed to be no such thing as unemployed Christians. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about like professionally unemployed. That unfortunately sometimes does happen, even though I think minimally, as Christians are constantly looking to use their gifts wisely. But I'm talking about within the body of believers itself. There is to be no unemployed, non-working, non-serving Christian. There are no, in the body of Christ, there are no vestigial organs. You know what a vestigial organ is? You heard that term? Uh, it became popular in the past century or so with the rise of macroevolution. And macroevolutionary thought basically said, that there is genetic structure that every human body and every uh, biological creature has that is essentially no longer necessary. It was perhaps necessary and functional for our ancestors, but it's not necessary anymore today. An example of this would be like the appendix. So for a long time, scientists said the appendix does nothing. nothing. Nothing good. You know, like it can go haywire and you can get an appendicitis and it can cause you to die, but we can see no reason that it serves any functional purpose, and they kind of arrogantly concluded, many of them, that if we can't see the reason for it, it must have no reason. If we can't see the purpose, that means there is no purpose. Now, that's the difference between subjective and objective truth. Uh, Scientists, most of them today, would say, actually, the appendix, so far as we can tell, probably plays a fairly important role when it comes to creating bacteria that assists in the digestive system. It helps with the immune system and other functions like that. In other words, most today will say, yes, it has a function. We're not entirely sure what it is, but it does have it. It's not vestigial. It has a purpose. Just because we before said it had no purpose doesn't mean it doesn't have a purpose. Uh, another example of that, more common recent one, would be something called junk DNA, which if you've ever studied biology, you've probably heard that term before. It became popular in the 90s and 2000s with biologists, like big-time biologists, like Richard Dawkins, who are saying that since only so far as we can tell about 2% of the DNA codes for protein, that means that seemingly 98% of it is, you know, irrelevant. And maybe it wasn't important at one time in the past, but it is a hangover, a leftover of former importance, but it no longer serves a purpose. Almost no one's saying that anymore, because in the 2010s, papers were published that said that 80% of the human genome essentially has biochemical functions and we're just kind of waiting for the rest of the information to come in. In In other words, every part of the physical body by design has a purpose. That shouldn't surprise us then that every part of the body of Christ has a specific designed purpose as well. Every part is uniquely gifted, therefore every part has a job. And that job is to glorify God by loving and serving one another ahead of self. Now, relevant to that conversation, at least, you know, in America, because we grew up in the land of opportunity and we're told essentially the aim of where you're going to spend your time and energy and gifting is whatever your personal passion is. Therefore, the question is, okay, should I be using gifts only that I would specifically enjoy using? Like what is the relationship between what makes me happy and my giftedness? Well, Paul actually directly addresses that in our text tonight because he specifically says, what if every part of the body wanted to be an eye? And what if every part of the body wanted to be a mouth? In other words, what if every part wanted to be something that was, you know, the more glorious, the more attention grabbing, uh, the ones that are celebrated more, the real movers and shakers like of the body? Nobody, no part of the body grows up aspiring to be a kneecap, you know? And yet, kneecaps serve their purpose. If you had no kneecaps, you would notice that, right? So they have a purpose. It's just less glamorous and less glorious. And therefore, what that tells us as Christians is you cannot, the world's mentality that your ambition should be that which drives you by your wants and desires cannot be true within the Christian framework of thinking. Rather, what drives our desires as Christians, as members of the body of Christ, is what glorifies God where is there a human need around me? And how have I been uniquely gifted? And I, just by way of example, I would even, like, I can speak most experientially to my own personal experience. Like, so for instance, I for a living am a pastor. Why do I do this? I ask myself often. Uh, is it because, you know, like, I, for a long time I've been acutely aware I could make more money doing something different. I could be more popular socially doing something different. Anybody who doesn't know that has never been a pastor at a party before because every time, you know, my wife introduces me to her friends and says, yes, he's a a pastor, you can feel the life get sucked out of the room and no one wants to hang out with that guy. Even me, if I know there's another pastor at a party, I will avoid that guy. Like, I don't want to go near him and have a conversation either. They're not fun. Nobody wants to talk to him. So I think I could be theoretically more popular, uh, possibly. Could I do something that might make me happier? Hmm. You see, what I've come to figure out is, now make no mistake, I find great joy in being content in the part of the body that I serve in. What I mean by that is I know I have some specific training, I know I have some specific gifts, and I find some peace in using those gifts if I think it benefits the body. Uh, And I think at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. It's not what makes me happy momentarily. It's at the end of the day, what glorifies God and what serves his people. Okay, so now that could mean a lot of different things for different people, but the, the, the point is every part of the body is gifted differently and gifted for a specific purpose. And the second point in that is it's not gifted randomly, it's gifted specifically by God's ordination. So the Apostle Paul says there are some parts that are uh, greater and some parts that are lesser. He doesn't say that all parts are equally gifted. He doesn't say that all gifts are equal in and of themselves either. That's interesting. That's not a problem for a Christian either, because Christians don't get our identity the way the world does. The world gets our identity by what gifts we have and what we accomplish with those gifts. But if a Christian gets their identity as the righteousness of Christ is gifted to them, and we all equally have that as children of God, then it's not a problem to say some gifts are greater or some gifts are more impressive or because our identity isn't wrapped up in our giftedness or in our accomplishments. Rather, by God's design and God's sovereign omni- uh, omniscience and his wisdom, he gifted each person the way that he wanted to, to carry out his purposes in time and space. My favorite example of that, my favorite illustration of that, uh, is actually in a movie that I really like that most people hate. In fact, critics absolutely hated it, in part because the director spent a good deal of time actually kind of laying into and criticizing critics in the movie. But it's an M. Night Shyamalan movie about 15 years ago called Lady in the Water. And it's, most people would say it's their least favorite M. Night Shyamalan movie. They, most people dislike it. It's, it's in one respect very simple and ordinary, and in another respect very deep and symbolic. I'm going to read you a portion of one of the critics' reviews of it. He said, Lady in the Water is a complicated story with a lot to take in. And to his credit, the director and writer, M. Night Shyamalan, tried to do something new. He didn't rely on existing source material and used common creatures from various folklore. The story goes like this. There's a main character, Cleveland Heap, played by Paul Giamatti. He's the superintendent of an apartment complex. And one night, he finds in the pool of that apartment complex a mythical creature called a narf, whose name is Story. And this pseudo-water nymph is on a quest to find someone named the author. Like I said, the whole thing is like dripping with symbolism. Uh, but this, this artist is an artist who, this author is an artist who will bring forth great changes in the world. And the author's work, he says, this story will influence the best of minds and bring on world peace or some other kinds of great change. Before she can return to her own world, however, she is attacked by something called a scrunt, a wolf like hunter. The only way to save herself from that creature is to recruit a team of experts to conduct a ritual to grant her safe passage to her home. She's looking for something she calls a symbolist, a guardian, a guild, and a healer. Now, here's where it gets interesting. It turns out that the quirky and kind-hearted residents of the apartment complex might actually be the very ones she's been looking for all the time. He says, with a little bit of hesitation... The residents don't fully dispute the existence of the supernatural, but holding them back instead is their inability to accept that they somehow hold an important role in the greater story. Now, you hear what he's saying? The the comparison that he's making in that movie with the apartment complex residents is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about with the body of Christ and how it functions. In fact, so let me just give you an example. There's one character. And the movie named Reggie, who's kind of a loser, and the only thing Reggie ever does—he's kind of a weirdo. He's a—he's he, kind of a bodybuilder too, but he's a weird bodybuilder who only lifts one muscle. All he ever does is he takes a dumbbell and he lifts it over and over and over. Not on both sides. He doesn't just work his upper half. It's not just always you know arm day. It's just one arm day. And every day he lifts—he lifts, he lifts that that bicep, and it's just this distorted, lopsided. They don't give you the background as to why that is. But it turns out that at the critical moment in the climax of the movie, we find out that Reggie, this ordinary kind of loser, plays the role of the guardian and he fights off the evil scrunt. Reggie was lifting that dumbbell his whole life, day by day, rep by rep, building up to that one crucial moment and he didn't know it the entire time. Now see, that's how the body of Christ works. We are uniquely gifted. Are you faithful with managing that gift? And irrespective of whether you see right now what the purpose of it is, do you faithfully manage it to the glory of God and the service of the body when the moments, the crucial moments of life come? You see that? See, now here's what's interesting within the gospel framework of that thinking. If you're unwilling to acknowledge your giftedness, if you're unwilling to develop your gift faithfully, if you're unwilling to use your gift when that critical moment arises, guess what? The gospel says God still loves you. Even when we're faithless, God still loves you. However, if you don't use that gift, you will be less satisfied in this life and the rest of the body will suffer, See. God has given the gift and he asks you to manage it wisely to his glory and the service of the body. So the parts are uniquely gifted. The parts are gifted specifically by God. The parts are gifted for the use of the service to one another. Thirdly, the human opinion of those body parts is absolutely miscalculated. The human value system, if you don't know this, is terrible. We all know this, but we don't know this to the degree we should. It's terribly warped. We come into this world with a warped value system. And this world only makes it worse, and it can only be fought off through a study of Scripture, repentance, and prayer. Uh, the things that we tend to hypervalue, uh, excuse me, There are, are the things that we seem, Paul used the word presentable. The things that we deem presentable, we hypervalue, and we tend to undervalue the things that we deem less presentable or the things that we just simply don't understand. Um, I recently came across a study I mean, you guys know, I'm often reading through different sociology studies, and one of the best things I've ever read on the influence of advertisement was a study that was conducted by two Canadian sociologists back in 1978 about the effects of marketing on children. And what they did is they took about 200 kids, they divided them into two groups, and to the first group, they showed two commercials commercial of a child playing with a specific toy. The second group, they showed no commercials. Then they asked all the kids individually, okay, who would you like to play with? We're going to give you two options. Boy one that you could play with has the toy from the two commercials you saw. But we have to warn you, he's not a very nice boy. In fact, he's a mean boy. Option two is to play with this other boy that doesn't have the toy from the commercials, but we're going to let you know ahead of time, he actually is a pretty nice boy to play with. Amongst the kids who had witnessed the commercials, the vast majority of them all chose to play with the mean boy who had the special toy. Amongst the kids who did not see the commercials, all of them chose to play, obviously, with the relatively nicer boy, the one that they were told is nicer. Number one, that parents, be careful and monitor what your kids take in because they're constantly sponging stuff up. But what this teaches us, the advertisements led the children to choose an admittedly inferior human connection over a superior human connection because they had been primed to think that what really matters in life was like a lump of plastic. Distorted value systems. Now, let me ask you, do you think you've outgrown that distorted value system? Do you think you have somehow, uh, just by aging, you no longer have this misguided, value-blinded heart? Perhaps this is the reason, so, like another example, Perhaps this is the reason that we as a society have largely chosen to, we pay, I'm not just saying this because there's a lot of teachers present, but we pay our our teachers who spend, you know, an enormous amount of time pouring their life and pouring their heart and pouring their hours into equipping, shaping, forming, melding, molding, and mentoring 25 or so kids every year. We pay them on average about one one one-hundredth of what we pay a different professional who we think is really good at catching a football or hitting a three-pointer. Now, I'm not against anybody earning a lot of money or I'm not trying to discourage, you know, big payments. But tell me that doesn't betray something about our value system. Therefore, we should absolutely assume that our flesh values things incorrectly. What that means is what seems sensational to us or what seems boring to us shouldn't be the indicator. What seems great to us and what seems lesser to us should indicate almost nothing. We should remember that we are part and we are contributing to, in a fallen state, a broken world value system and therefore what Christians want to do is step back and say, I'm not, I'm apart from that. I'm in the world but I'm not of the world. I'm thankful for the gifts that I have. I'm thankful for the gifts that others have. I trust God in the gifts that I don't have and I praise God for the fact that the body has all the gifts it really needs. All right, let me give to the, to the final teaching point here. The fact is, Jesus is the head. Paul says that implicitly in this text. Uh, it's where he says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Well, if you're the body of Christ, that means Christ is the head. He says that more explicitly in, in Ephesians 4, 4.15 where he says, Indeed, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of Him who is the head, that is, Christ. See, in a physical body, in very simple terms, the way it works is the parts of the body respond to the brain. In other words, there's constant communication going on, largely driven by the brain. And it sends messages and it sends blood flow, and yet the parts of the body have receptors and they send signals back. There's a constant two-way street of communication between the brain and the other parts of the body. Now, interestingly, if the parts of the body, for whatever reason, fail to communicate with their head, they become absolutely useless. And they actually become a drain on the rest of the body. You follow that? In other words, it is absolutely reasonable if God is the one who is our head, and God is the one who designed us. He knows how we best work. Uh, he he knows what's best for us. It's ter- perfectly reasonable that we would listen to Him, like the parts of the body listen to the brain. The problem with that, and this is where the metaphor of Paul starts to break down a little bit, and every metaphor or an analogy does, <sighs> is simply the fact that you know reason doesn't motivate us all that well. Just because it's reasonable doesn't mean we'll do it. It doesn't motivate us like grace does. Uh, so in other words, if the head is the most essential, most glorious, most uh, it's the thing that's in charge, how do you explain the fact that we're told Jesus Christ is the head of his church, the body of believers, and yet he chose to lay down his life to pay for the sins of his body. In other words, why would a head a head sometimes chooses to amputate certain parts of the body that are going to you know infect the other parts. But when would a head? Ever lay down its life for a body. See, this is where the analogy breaks down. The only reason it ever would would be because of incomprehensible love and because the head, for some reason, viewed its job as primarily to serve its body. And the Bible says that's exactly the way Jesus perceives himself as our head. It's what he told us. The Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom for all of our unhealthy competitiveness in the body. For all of our petty jealousy in the body. For all of our unhelpful noncompliance in the body. For all of our lack of service to the body, he gave his life as a ransom for Again, this is where the understanding of grace sort of overwhelms our hearts and our sensibilities because Jesus deserved everything, but he gave up everything because he loved us undeservedly and he still does. See, the parts of the body naturally submit to, they naturally listen to the head when they're functioning properly. That's natural, but it's never natural for the head to lay itself down for the body. And what that means is Jesus isn't just a reasonable leader. Oh yeah, he's of course a reasonable leader. It makes sense to listen to the one who designed you. That doesn't motivate you to live for him. What motivates you is he's a gracious leader. In other words, we're not merely parts of a body that have to respond to our brain, but it's like we're loved members of a family Who will want to respond to our deeply respected head of household. Now, let me break off three quick applications of the text, then, okay? Number one, I think what this does, the different parts of the body are different, and different is tough. Putting different things, putting different types of people together is tough. Putting people with different gifts together. Why? Because it creates an environment often of jealousy. It creates additional miscommunications and misunderstandings. It often creates competing interests. However, despite complexity being difficult, diversity, excuse me, diversity is absolutely necessary for survival. Now, that's true in a physical body. It's true in the body of Christ, too. Do You know that if you've ever studied aging theory, you know that one of the explanations, again, for why a body dies is as you grow older, essentially what happens, the body weakens, your systems start to slow down, and everything tends to become uniform. Now, the ultimate, I could give you a couple different examples of that, but for time's sake, I'm just going to give you the final example that's not debatable. When you die, when your body decomposes, what happens to it? What does it look like? It becomes dust, where each particle is entirely uniform with all the others, Each particle is indistinguishable from all the others. And when that happens to a body, it's dead. Now, what does that mean? Unity without diversity creates uniformity. Uniformity in a physical body or in the body of Christ inevitably leads to death. And as a local congregation and as church bodies, and as the church of Christ on earth, we must value diversity in the body because it's God that is the one who made us diverse. It's God the one who gave us different gifts. Okay, so that's point one. Point two know, know your role and live your role. Um, Paul does something at the end of the text here that's extraordinarily helpful. He gives us a list of all the different types of gifts that he's thinking of. Now, We're not going to go through each one, but commentators will say there seems to be about four different categories here. There's word ministry, word gifts, like apostles, prophets, evangelists. There are, for lack of a better term, attractional gifts, like miracle-making gifts. Miracles in the Bible are referred to as signs, meaning they refer to and point to something else. They're not ends in and of themselves, but they're signs that point you to Christ, and therefore, those who have attractional abilities, this, is, this could be popularity, this could be celebrity, this could be musical gifts, this could be fine arts gifts that point other people to Jesus Christ, that's a category of ministry and a category of gifting. A third one would be helping gifts, gifts of compassion. This is uh, helping those uh, who need care for, for their physical health, care for those who are disabled, care for the socially marginalized. And the last group, the fourth category, is administrative gifts. These are people who love spreadsheets and charts and stuff like that. But it's financials and it's legalities and it's communications and marketing and that kind of stuff. If you're not aware, at St. Marcus, we push those four different categories into about six different volunteer options by which we we describe them as administrative, compassion, facility maintenance, hospitality, worship arts, and youth ministry. And some of you are aware that every spring we do kind of an inventory on how many of our adult members are regularly volunteering in some kind of way. This past spring, the count led to about 46%. 46% of our adult uh, population here at St. Marcus, our membership, is regularly involved in a recurring service volunteering kind of role. Now, we've been working hard to get to 46%, and that number has gone up historically about 4% in the past four or five years. My hope and prayer is that next year at this time we would get to 50%. Here's the catch. What do you call a body where only 50% of it is moving and operating functionally? That's a stroke victim. That's somebody who is not functioning properly. And, you know, I say this, with all due respect to people who have suffered strokes They would be the first ones to tell you that they cannot have the impact that they once had because of what they're now going through. And you know, interestingly, if you continue to push that analogy, you know why somebody, a stroke victim, can't use their body? Because those portions of the body are no longer communicating with their head. The exact same thing takes place in the body of Christ. To the degree that people are not properly communicating with Jesus Christ as their head back and forth. His study and our prayers to him, they become ineffective and inactive. And all I want you to do is challenge you on this. Think about what it would look like if every member of the body of Christ actually moved according to the generous giftedness that God has given us. I think the rest of the world would look at it as though it were a miracle. And in fact, I want to say something else, like super positive. In the the realm of our compassion ministry, one of the things is, as many terrible things has happened through the COVID crisis, one of the cool things is it definitely has been a boon to our compassion ministry here at St. Marcus. We started a COVID-19 response form and team, which you can go to at our website, plug in. Uh, What we've had in the past couple of months is we've had 98 different volunteers from members within the congregation. That means we need two more to get to 100 for those of you who are looking for something to do but we're at 98 right now, Uh, they have put together 300 unique acts of service that have been blessings to over 160 different households. That is what the body in motion working together can accomplish. Um, Okay, here's a final thought. No one live out your role. By the way, you should totally anticipate that you're going to feel unfulfilled if, if you're not. If you're struggling with feelings of dissatisfaction and unfulfillment right now, just think, if you have all this gifted potential and it's not being, maybe you're using it, but you're not aiming it in the right direction, there's going to be a dissatisfaction attached to that. Find the joy that comes in being part of the moving body. Here's the last thing, lead by laying down for your body. And what I mean by this is Jesus is very clearly our head. First and foremost, Jesus is our savior for all the times that we haven't functioned as the body the way we were supposed to. That's where we start. But that's not where we end. We're also told that Jesus as the head, is the, he's the obvious and ideal leader. And what he also does is he gives us responsibilities so that he makes many of us mini heads to other parts and portions of the body. So if you are a parent in a household, you are a leader in that body. If you are on a committee or a council or a board at a church, you are a, a functional kind of head within that part of the body. Uh, If you are, you could be a leader amongst your peer group. You could be a leader in your workplace. All those different kinds of things. If you are to lead, what does that headship look like? Well, we look to our head and we say, okay, here's what it looks like. It looks like inspiring those who follow you to work together humbly as they watch you lay down your life for them. That's what Jesus has done for us. And it has saved us. It is currently transforming us and it will motivate us moving forward. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, forgive us. We can be so selfish with our gifts, but your generosity, your grace, has paid for every last one of our mistakes. As your body, move us to submit to you move us to work together, move us to bless one another with the gifts that you've given. May we glorify you, our head, our Lord, and our Savior. In your name we pray. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.